Welcome to the Loving Your Husband Before You Even Have One podcast. My name's Kim, and I'm here with my co-host, Adrian, and we are so glad you've chosen to spend some time with us today. We will be discussing choices you can make while you're single that will help you flourish in your single years and increase your odds for an enjoyable, lasting marriage later. It's kind of like you're loving your husband before you even have one. Adrian, we're talking about a hard topic today. You know, we live in a broken world where broken things happen. And it's important as followers of Christ to know that broken things can still happen to us. It doesn't mean that God isn't good or that he doesn't love us. And too, like when we experience these hurts, it's really important that we take time to resolve them and work through them because these hurts will ultimately influence our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And we really hope that as a result of this week's discussion, that you will be inspired by Megan's story. Adrian, you hadn't moved here yet, but it was right after we moved here and to Arizona and my husband uh, took a position to uh, lead our our campus ministry region, so we covers a lot of different campuses. Um, but one morning the phone rang, and I just sat stunned with the news. Our dear friends and coworkers, Megan and Alex, had been kidnapped. Three young men had broken into their home the night before, and they held them at gunpoint. And for hours they sat at gunpoint while their house was ransacked, and robbed until they were forced into a car and taken around to several ATMs. You know, it was just such the most, it was the most bizarre, wild thing I'd ever heard. And my heart just broke knowing that our friend Megan had gone through that. You know, thankfully, they got to safety later that morning. But as you can imagine, the fear and the trauma ran really deep. You know, that night they resolved that they were going to die. So my friend and our friend Megan is here with us today to share with us some of her story. Megan, thank you so much for being with us and talking about this hard time in your life. You know, this is the first time you're speaking about this publicly. So thank you for letting us in and thank you for sharing with our listeners. And I know we won't be able to cover it all. I mean, I, I envision you writing a book at some point, <laughs> but, you know, I want to respect the private aspects and, and really honor your story. But thank you for being with us. Yeah, I'm so honored to be here, guys. Before we get into the story, could you just share a little bit about who you are, what you do about your family, just so that people can connect with you? Yeah. Um, well, uh, I have been married for almost five years, and we have a little girl named Millie who will be one in January, and um, we have a dog named Ruby who has uh, definitely become the bottom of the totem pole um, since Millie has come around. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we, I'm just really enjoying my life here in Colorado. I'm just loving um, my family. I'm loving um, what we do. And uh, I've worked with Sumo for, let's see, eight and a half years now. And um, I, yeah, I have just loved uh, 
getting to see college students years after year after year um, get their questions answered about who God is and being able to have a personal relationship with him and really seeing that, you know, like no matter where you come from, no matter what background you have, um, that people have a spiritual desire uh, and people have a spiritual hunger. And I just love being able to be in a position um, just to be someone that those college girls could talk to. That's awesome. And for our listeners um, who are unfamiliar with what STUMO is, STUMO is the campus ministry that all of us are kind of associated with. And uh, and so that's just for a little bit of the background. Okay, Megan, did you ever expect like what we just recapped? Would, did you ever expect that to be part of your story? Oh, gosh, no. You know, I mean, as a kid, I think I was always sort of the like, I would see trailers for scary movies and be like, oh no, like this is going to happen to me and things like that. And people would always say like, oh, like, you know, that's not real. And, you know, like the chance of that happening is like getting struck by lightning. Uh, and then I essentially got struck by lightning. And, um, you know, I just never anticipated that night that anything was going to happen to me whenever I went to bed. Gosh, yeah. I mean, no one expects stuff like that to happen them happen to them. And so going back to that night, how long were those boys with you guys? You know, it's crazy. It felt like forever because each moment, you know, was shock and each moment is sort of plastered in my mind. But it, all in all, from the time that they came into a room to the time that they left, it was two hours, two hours and 15 minutes. Um, it really was not that long. Hmm. Megan, what was going through your mind? I mean, you're, you're dead asleep and, you know, I mean, the noise, I mean, I don't know. I mean, were they yelling at you? I mean, what was going through your mind? I think I'm still processing that even, <laughs> you know, those first five seconds were so dense with things happening, things going through my mind, noises, feelings. It was just so dense, you know? Um, I think the only other time in my life that I had something that dense of moments was when I was giving birth to my child. <laughs> I mean, it was so, just everything happening. But, I, you know, it's interesting um, at first, I don't know what this says with my friends, but I thought maybe it was my friends pulling a prank at first, um, or like a surprise. I, I think I went from prank to like, oh no, this is something fun. Like, I, I mean, I was in a sorority. So I'm like, is, are we going to a date dash? I don't know. Um, it's sort of like popped through my mind. And then, uh, whenever I saw guns, I thought maybe our house was on fire and it was the police department or the fire department coming to save us. And it really wasn't until you know, all of them had, you know, each of them had guns and there were lights, um, like I guess on a scope or something like that on their guns. And that sort of illuminated the scary mask that they were wearing. Um, and it was, it wasn't until then, you know, probably we're at three seconds in at this point that I realized like, oh, I'm not safe. Um, and then from there, I looked over uh, to Alex, as soon as I realized that we, we weren't safe and I saw him face down on the ground with one of them pulling his hands behind his back and asking for duct tape uh, to tape his hands behind his back. 
And then meanwhile, I'm being approached at the same time by one of them physically. And then the other is pointing his gun at my dog because she was barking and making, you know, just a ruckus. And so that was all kind of within that first five seconds uh, that it happened. I mean, that's a lot to process. And, you know, Alex is, is not a little guy. He is a big guy and he is a muscular guy. I would not want to try to mess with him. And I, I can imagine how scary that must have been to see him face down on the floor with his hands behind his back. I mean, I just, uh, I mean, did you feel like this is it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah. Uh, you know, it seems like the obvious answer is yes. You know, like any person in my shoes would fear death, but I, I really mean it when I say that through the night, I came to a point where I had resolved we were going to die. You know, I had resolved that there, you know, they had given us 12 or more death threats at this point. I mean, they said, we're going to kill you. <sighs> yeah. Like we, like, you know, if you blank, we'll kill you. If you don't give us this, we'll kill you. If you tell anyone, we'll kill you. If, you know, so on and so it was a lot of different, you know, you could frame it different ways, but I, I, I came to not doubt that. I mean, I'm just trying to like even picture myself there witnessing that happen or even witnessing that as you. And you're just like, yeah, when someone is telling you that multiple times, I'm sure you just, you start to believe that of, okay, this isn't a dream. This isn't a nightmare. It's, it's real life and it is scary and I am going to die. Um, and so knowing you, Megan, and knowing, um, you before this happened, I knew that you struggled with panic attacks. And so what held you together in this moment, being someone that has had a passive panic attacks, what was going through your mind? I did have a couple panic attacks that night. And I'm honestly shocked that that it was left at only two, <laughs> uh, one was whenever I was approached physically in those first five seconds. And then later in the evening, when they, after they had kidnapped us, we were in the car and they started doing, you know, donuts with the car in a parking lot. <laughs> and it, what's really funny, this is, <laughs> I, <laughs> we were in this parking lot and one of them was like, oh, I bet we could do donuts and i it was almost 5 a.m by this point and so i thought like oh he wants to get donuts <laughs> and so i was like yeah sure and then all of a sudden the car just like whips and it was like instant panic attack right then and there um just the the physical shock even mm. but you know you know i say that say i i i wouldn't say i totally held it together um for sure but when i think about what kept me it, what what did give me calm or what did give me I, I don't know if I'd call it calm but some stability in that time was you know two things I, I think first how calm and really in control Alex was my husband Alex you know he was so incredibly sober-minded and you know I look at him and his home is being invaded and he's being robbed but he's, he held through that whole time, such a tone and posture that showed that this was still his house, you know? And I just, I'm, I'm still in awe of how he was able to do that. I remember him saying to the guys, Hey, you can have whatever you want. I'll show you around to see what we have, but she either comes with me or you stay far away from her. 
you know, he was, he was holding the control of the room, even with no gun in his hand. And, you know, I wasn't wearing very much, uh, when they came in. And the first thing he, you know, asked of them once, uh, he got their attention was that they turn around so I could put some clothes on, (laughs) you know, he protected my dignity, you know, even while guns were being pointed at us. Um, and so that really did give me a lot of, uh, stability, just seeing how he was leading us through such a terrible time. And the second thing that held me together, uh, and I, I would say was definitely the most significant was the, this prayer that kept repeating in my mind. I really feel like God just put it there. Um, it's a song actually, it says, Lord, I need you. Oh, how I need you every hour. I need you. My one defense, my righteousness. Oh God, how I need you, you know, and I really, I'd heard that song before, but for some reason it kept repeating through my mind. Like I said, I feel like God gave it to me, but I really believed every word to a new degree, uh, that I had never felt before. You know, I really felt I needed the Lord, you know, I'm seeing my sweet husband, um, you know, having to negotiate with these people. I'm seeing that we have this dire physical, (laughs) spiritual eternal need for him. And, you know, he was my one defense, um, at 2am, uh, every hour, you know, every hour it was 2am what, you know, I should be sleeping. Um, and with a gun pointed at me, you know, he was my one defense. And so I could pray that was something they couldn't take from me. You know, they asked for our phones and our guns right away, but you know, like I was still able to pray on my own and, as I said earlier, I had resolved I would die that night. And, you know, that line of my righteousness, you know, my one defense, my righteousness, you know, I have followed, been following Christ for over a decade. But in that time, I was incredibly sobered that the, the, the reality was they would likely kill us. Either they would shoot us after they got what they wanted or they would take us hostage and we would die in a few days. However it played out, I had never been more sobered than I was in that moment that night that the only reason I would be going to heaven to be with God was because of Jesus' righteousness that he poured out on me. You know, at this point, I had been in ministry for six years And when I considered my last few hours on earth, I didn't think about all the good deeds I've done. I didn't think about the people I've led to Christ. I didn't think about the ministry I had, you know, done for the Lord, you know, and nor did I think about the sins I committed. I wasn't plagued by all these things. What I was only thinking about was the gospel and that because Jesus died for my sins and I had trusted him as my Lord, that I was now righteous to God. And I was just beside myself and so thankful and so sure and clear that that was all that had mattered. I mean, Adrian, I, <laughs> ooh, I hope I can make it through our conversation, but can you imagine, I mean, you know, you, I mean, you just never know how you're going to respond or what you're going to think. And I mean, and here's our sweet friend, Megan, and just, a, it's just really amazing. Um, and, I'm just and in a moment like so dark and helpless that in that night 
she remembered God and she remembered his work and nothing about her own work. And I'm like, the fact that she just remembered the gospel is just truly amazing. So thank you, <laughs> Megan, for sharing that with our listeners, because like Kim said, that is really sobering. And I hope that in my last few hours of life, that would be all I would remember, too, is I would remember the gospel. I would remember Jesus. And so you had mentioned a little bit, like Alex, he said he wanted to keep within sight of you, like you had to be close, and if not, you know, the guys had to be far away from you. So how did you guys relate when all of this was going on? Yeah, gosh, Um, you know, for obvious reasons, aside from those statements that he said to me, you know, we didn't say much to each other. It's not like we can be like, hey, pause, let's go make a plan. (laughs) Um, but I think I remember him looking at me a few times and, you know, just saying, it's going to be okay. And we're going to give these guys what they need and it's going to be okay. Um, and when we were in the car, I remember considering, you know, how do I help Alex right now? What, what do I do? And what's my role? (laughs) And I remember thinking like, okay, do I roll out of the car? Do I just, you know, like ditch roll run for, you know, a house bang on the door, what do I do? But then, you know, like they would be alone with him. Do they shoot after me? All of this stuff is going through my mind and I'm trying to figure out what, how can I help? But, you know, I really just resolved that, that, you know, like I, I, I completely trust Alex. And I knew that if that was the best course of action, that he would do it himself or he would risk telling me to run in front of them, you know? So I just continued to follow his lead um, with no chance to discuss a plan. And I'm just so grateful that I'm married to a man that I am just so confident that that is the best course of action. Um, and it really wasn't until later that night that we even acknowledged what had happened. You know, Megan, because we're friends, I know more details of of the night and, you know, I've asked you ahead of time, you know, if I could, if I could share about this, but, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you never know what's going to come out of you during a time like this. You know, I, I just imagine myself just screaming and crying and just going cra- bizarro, you know, just like, no, this isn't happening. This can't be happening. No, this isn't happening. You know, but you kind of held your composure and you actually felt some compassion for these young men who are taking from you. And you even asked one of them during the evening if you could pray for them. How did he respond to that? You know, yeah, he, I, I was alone with two of them at two different times. And, you know, like, like, and they honored Alex's request. They stayed far away from me the whole time. And, you know, one said, sure. Uh, but then the other you know, he was very uncomfortable, you know, and he was like, I can't, I can't ask you, or you can't do that while I'm doing this to you. And, you know, I tried to have a conversation with him of, you know, like, Hey, that's okay. Like we can still pray. And, but he just, just asked me to stop talking. Um, that's kind of how I responded. What prompted you to want to pray for him? I mean, or what prompted you to want to do that? You know, I, I still go back to, you know, like that, song that I was praying through is just my one defense. You know, the idea that he is, God is my one defense. And I knew I could, I could pray and they couldn't take that from me. In reality, if I believe that 
I was praying to the God of the universe who knows me, loves me, that that was a much better weapon than they had. I know that sounds, you know, maybe corny, but it really like in that sobering time, I was like, man, like I have access to the creator of the universe who loves me. I mean, like that is so powerful. And then I considered that they may not feel that way. They may not know how to pray, but whatever brought them there, the best thing I could give them would be a chance to talk with God. Like, you know, of all, all of my money, all of my stuff, all the things I had, I knew that like the best thing I could give them was, you know, a step toward a relationship with God. And no matter what sin you're in, no matter who you are, what you've done, anyone has a chance to pray. Well, Megan, you and Alex love God deeply and you have served him faithfully over the years. You know, what emotions, you know, if, if we kind of go afterwards, you know, that everybody's gone, it's just the two of you, you're left in the house. And I think they even threatened you. It's like, if you call anybody or reach out to anybody, you know, I mean, what emotions were you feeling during that time? I mean, I, I can imagine there's fear. Are they going to come back? Are they going to, you know, I, I don't know. Like, what were you feeling afterwards? You know, um, they were caught and arrested three days after. And so really the ensuing week, the ensuing weeks, everything was just so incre both incredibly heightened and also very numb. I think numbness was the predominant emotion that I, I really clung to. Um, because whenever I would really take time to feel what I was feeling, I, I would just have such a overwhelming, you know, panic attack and I didn't really know what to think of it at all. And so I just felt it easier just to run on autopilot, acknowledge or run on autopilot rather than acknowledge what had happened. Um, because, you know, my understanding of safety was shattered and even as they were, arrested, you know, before they were arrested, I mean, I was, we, we didn't go home for a month. You know, I was like, there's nowhere I'm safe. How can I be okay? You know, every corner it's like, do they know where we are? How are, are they going to find us? They, they said, if we told anybody that would kill us, you know, all, all of this is going through my mind. And so Alex and I, yeah, I'm understandably so, you know, didn't sleep with the light off for a while. Um, but yeah. Then even after they were caught, there was the question of, you know, could they get out on bail? What's going to happen there? And so it was just court date, court date, court date, processing those things. Um, yeah. And so I'd say numbness was the thing that I kind of relied on for, for about a week. Yeah. And I can, I can definitely see why that would be your first emotion because no one's prepared to ever go through a scenario like this. And especially when you're in that scenario and you're seeing, you know, people destroy your home, take things um, that belong to you. And you're just unsure of like, what do I even do next? I'm sure that was like some of you and Alex's like thoughts, whether or not you express them. But 
Um, I was in Colorado with you guys when that happened. So I know you guys had to go get new driver's license. You had to go get all new bank accounts. You had to get new passports. It's like they stole um, everything, like checkbooks, you name it. Um, They just robbed you guys of all those things. And so even just from needing to start over in your like life, <laughs> like you had to do all that on top of grieving and trying to recognize like what happened and how to turn to God in those scenarios. And so, yeah, I'm like, it makes sense that one would feel numb in that scenario. But I want to ask this too. Did you ever feel angry um, at God for that happening? And what was it like to pray? Like, did you pray afterwards? Um, did you want to read your Bible? Give us some insights into that. Yeah, I actually love this question. I love talking about what this looked like because I really felt like it was such a deepening point in my walk with God and my understanding of him. You know, I I really fully anticipated. I was prepared to hate God. I was prepared to feel angry at him. And I really, I feared becoming hard-hearted toward him after this. But in that first week while settling and kind of like clinging to that numbness, I started to ask questions. You know, I remember calling you, Kim, and um, other friends and, you know, like my, my, our dear friends that we were staying with at the time, you know, I remember asking questions of sort of why, why did this happen? And it was during that time that our friend um, that we were staying with, you know, she had listened to me every day since the break-in happened and said to me kind of along the lines of, you know, I don't know the answers and I'm so sorry, but cheap theology won't get you through this. Cheap theology won't get you through this. And what she said really struck me. Uh, you know, that surface level depth of connection and trust and understanding of God would not cut it for this kind of experience. You know, I had to be willing to face God and work through this with him. You know, I had, I had to sort of like uh, go to the, to the mat with God over it. And, you know, I, I remember realizing that and I was so grateful to my friend for sharing that with me because it just gave me sort of like a, a step uh, of what to do. It wasn't just like, you know, like, oh, we'll pray and trust. It was like, well, you know, like this is really hard. <laughs> and I think it's probably going to take challenging thoughts, challenging conversations with God, challenging, you know, things. Um, but it was about eight days after the break-in that I finally sat down to meet with God. And I'm so serious whenever I say, like, I was going to that Starbucks because pumpkin spice lattes were out. And so I went to Starbucks. I hate how basic I am. Uh, But I went to that Starbucks and I'm so serious when I say like, I was, it was like, I had set an appointment with God. Like I was going to go sit across that table at Starbucks by myself. And it was like, whenever I sat down and looked at him, it, it was really me facing him for the first time since it had happened. You know, I prayed to him that night and I had like prayed for for strength that whole week. But really it was like, I was talking to him without looking at him, you know? And this was the first time I really felt like I, I looked at God and I had anticipated in this meeting that God would, I would find him stoic and, you know, controlled. I thought he would be maybe 
disappointed in my hurt and confusion, you know, because if I was hurt and confused, then I didn't trust him and I didn't believe he was good. And, you know, that if he would have let this happen to me, really, that's what I thought I'd find. But I'm, I'm, I can't express enough how true it is that I found something entirely different. You know, he was sad. He was heartbroken. It was like he, I felt from God, like he just wanted to hold me. You know, he didn't shame me for feeling hurt and confused. It was like he agreed that it was all so terrible, which, you know, really confused me to the point of cheap theology. You know, I was like, how could be, how could God be in control and know everything and yet be sad and broken over what happened? My cheap theology at the time did not compute how that could work together. But as I, as I read and as I looked back at God's word, I found some understanding as I read John 11 you know, story, I love this story and it's, I feel like I've seen it work in my life in a lot of ways, but at this time, you know, it's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And while Jesus was away, Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus had died. Jesus had known Lazarus was going to die. He was friends with Lazarus and with Mary and Martha. And, um, the first time Mary and Martha saw Jesus after Lazarus had died, they each said individually, you know, essentially, had you been here, he wouldn't have died. Where, you know, paraphrase, where were you? Why, why did you let this happen? And what's interesting is just the same way as I felt in that Starbucks, you know, Jesus didn't rebuke them for their frustration. You know, he tells Martha, who has faith, in Jesus plan, you know, she expresses that, you know, he tells Martha Lazarus will rise again. Then to Mary, who is weeping and in mourning, you know, it says that Jesus was moved and troubled. And then comes the famous verse, Jesus wept. You know, I see that and it's so moving to me because it shows that Jesus met each of them where they were at and with what they needed. You know, he wasn't just frustrated by their lack of faith. He wasn't frustrated by their questioning. He, he was like a father, you know, uh, and he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he still joined Mary in her hurt because he also was sad. You know, he was present with her in that time and he didn't feel this need to just tell her, Oh, don't cry because I'm about to fix it. No, he just joined her in her hurt. Where is God when I'm hurting? He's hurting. Well, Megan, you know, you talked about this cheap theology, and uh, I mean, it just, you, you can't just patch a Bible verse on this and all the emotions and stuff. How, as a result of all of this, how has your view of God changed? You know, I always thought that anytime something hard happened in my life, I had, you know, sort of conditioned myself to like thinking like, well, like this is good. God wanted this to make me more like him. And, and I think that there are times that that is true. You know, we see in the Bible where God allows trial, you know, because it proves us genuine, right? It, it you know, it says in first Peter, we come out as more pure than gold through trial, right? And James, it says, you know, like, you know, to find joy in it. So there's that. I think that's true. But I also think that God is greatly grieved by the evil 
in this world and hates when it hurts us. I think there's a big difference between those two things. You know, I think in Romans 8, 28, when it says he works all things for the good of those who love him, you know, it doesn't mean that believers will have this easy, happy life. Uh, no, I think it, when it says for the good, it means becoming more like Christ. Right. And to the point that I said earlier, it's, you know, he's allowing all, you know, things, he works all things so that we become more like him because it's what God sees as good. And that is good. But also when it says he works all things, you know, for this purpose, I don't think it means he makes hurt and evil happen because hurt draws us closer to him. No, I really think God in his grace redeems hurt and terrible things after they happen. Like Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, but then through it later being put it, put in this position of power. You know, he said to his brothers at that time, you know, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. You know, he brought me to this position so I could save lives of many people. And if you study the word intended here, it translated, uh, it translates as wove. And so he's essentially saying you wove evil, but God rewove it together for good. And I really see that. I think that's a huge thing that I've seen, you know, God just as a redeemer and not just the sanctifier. He is both and, you know, but evil is not something that he approves of ever. You know, it's interesting I've heard people say, and I think it was really good intention, absolutely good intention. They've heard my story and they've said, man, God was so good to save you. God was so good to keep you safe. God was so good to, you know, not have you die that night. And I totally get what is being said there. And I 100% agree. As I look back at that night, you know, I can see in my mind, Jesus in the room. I can see where God did save me. I can see uh, where he kept those men far from me. I felt like, you know, in, in Psalm 23, when it says your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, I, I pictured Jesus holding a staff sideways between them and me. You know, I can see that. I do think 100% that it's to his, you know, credit, his power, his protection, his love for me. But you know, it prompted me to think, okay, so, but what if it hadn't ended that way? What if that wasn't the end of my story? What if Alex had died and I stayed alive? Or what if we both had died or, or vice versa? Would God still be good? And, you know, thinking through that really brought me to a point of realizing and believing how small of a view of God that is that's a really small view of God to just pin his goodness next to whether he saved us or not, because there's so many stories that don't end like that. And so where's God, where's God's goodness in that? And I really, as I think through it, I'm like, okay, so if I had died, man, God 100% would have still been so good and still provided and still saved me because, you know, 11 years ago, I made a decision to trust Christ with my life uh, as my Lord and my Savior. I made a decision to believe that Jesus lived a perfect life, that he was the son of God, and that his sacrifice on the cross paid for the penalty that I deserved, uh, that I was no longer separated from God because of the death that he died and paid for me. And so because I, I trusted Christ 
11 years ago, if I would have died that night, man, I would have gone to be with Jesus. I would have gone to be with God. I would be uh, in perfection in heaven with him. He still would have saved me even if I would have physically died. And I, I really do think that the gospel of Jesus is God's answer to the hurt and brokenness in our world. It doesn't always go the way that we see it should, but he always does provide because of the sacrifice Christ made. It sounds like you've taken just a lot of steps to process everything. And so I just wanted to ask more specifically, what steps have you taken to process all that happened? I think I'm still in that process. Uh, but a key thing I would say other than, you know, continuing to lean into not having a cheap theology, continuing to face God, continuing to cling to him and have good community. I, I think one of the most important things that I have done was be in counseling over it. Uh, a really good friend of mine right after it happened, raised thousands of dollars overnight from people. I knew people she knew, uh, to essentially set up a like counseling fund for us to where we just wouldn't have to worry about recovery. And it was one of the biggest blessings I'll, I'll never forget. Um, and the reality is that I've had to revisit counseling in different seasons, you know, as new things have happened as, you know, like we've had our baby girl as, you know, um, just different things we've been exposed to, I can get triggered and it can come back. But I really like to think that as I'm newly triggered time and time again, it, it's getting easier to come down from, you know, and the reality is that trauma, no matter how small or brief, it affects us. And there may be consequences that we always live with, but our willingness to process it well, will determine if that trauma takes the driver's seat in our life or not. You know, forgiveness played an important part in your healing, Megan, and I can only imagine how difficult, you know, that was forgiving these young men who hurt you in so many painful ways. And it's been two years and the robbers have been arrested and they're tried and they're locked up. But during one of the sentencing trials, you did something amazing. Um, and I, I'd like to for you, I'd like to read um, the statement that you made in court, um, and you made it specifically to the young man that was being tried. Um, I won't use his name, but you just asked the judge if you could share a letter that you wrote to him for the own for your own sake of closure and your own healing, and he allowed you to do that. And you just told him, you said. Over the last two years, I've thought about that night every day. It completely wrecked my sense of safety and my nature of optimism. It took so much more from me than material things. But when I recall the events of that night, a moment I often come back to was when I asked if I could pray for you. It was the only thing I could think to do. You told me no, and you said something along the lines of that it wasn't personal and that you just had no other options. And as I reflect, I think you really, I think you really believed in that moment. Um, I think you, oh, excuse me. And as I reflect, I think you really believed that in that moment. I can't imagine what you must have been going through to bring you to that conclusion. 
I won't pretend to know your circumstance or your struggle. I am so sorry. But what I do know and what I've wanted to share with you since then is that no matter who you are or what you've done, there is one option you will always have to ask for forgiveness. I don't mean asking for forgiveness just to get out of consequences. These kinds of consequences you're facing can't be overlooked. But I mean asking for forgiveness from God. The Bible promises that forgiveness is offered by Jesus and readily given to anyone who asks for it. It says in Romans 5 8 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That death was to pay for our sins. I hope you see in that verse that there's nothing you have done or can do that would make God not want a relationship with you. And that's my prayer for you to know Him. I don't know if I can get through it. And I want you to know and hear it from me that because of the forgiveness Christ has shown me, I too forgive you. You don't need my forgiveness to be forgiven by God, but I want you to have it. I don't want to carry the pain of that day with me anymore. Rather, I'm going to carry what I experienced firsthand of God instead. I experienced His protection, His goodness, His sorrow over the brokenness of the world, and His desire to make it new. He was there. And I'll continue to pray for you to know Him. Woo, girl. That's incredible. That is just really incredible. Can you just share briefly? Um, I know we're almost out of time, but I just want you to share briefly. You know, what what prompted you to want to say that to him? I'll say I read that almost two years later. And so it took a while. You know, I didn't feel like I had to. No one was going to expect me to forgive them publicly. And it's not going to change their outcome, you know, as far as earthly consequences go. But, you know, I really came to believe that they were no different than me. I really came to see that, you know, they and I are both sinners. We're both hopeless without Christ. We just have different earthly consequences to our sins. And the second thought I had was forgiveness itself doesn't necessarily remove the desired consequences of the offender, but it does remove the bitterness and hurt between the victim and the offender. You know, I didn't want to live with hurt between them and I anymore. When I forgave them, I really felt it, you know, this, you know, elusive mystery and fear that they held in my mind just dissipated and they just became human like me and humans need forgiveness and a savior. Gosh, Megan. Wow. That is remarkable. Um, it imitates Jesus. Um, so I just wanted to affirm that in you of just your Christ likeness in the way that you forgive. And I really feel like we've only just like touched on the surface of your story. And I know you're still processing many aspects of what happened, but um, we do live in a broken world where bad things happen. And I know many of our listeners have faced trauma and injustice at the hands of others. And so I wanted to ask you this final question, what would you say to them? I wish I could sit with each of them. I wish I could look at them each and say, I'm so sorry. You know, we were never meant for brokenness. We were meant for the Garden of Eden. We were meant for unity with God. 
And I'd like to say to each of them, I promise that your creator who knit you and prizes you is the most broken over the sin and evil and pain that has interrupted his plan. And I know that that may be really hard to believe. I've been there. But I think we can look at, we have two options. We can look at the broken world and from that determine God's character. Or we can look at the Bible and study God's character and trust and believe that he is who he says he is. And then through that lens, look at the world and see that it is broken and in need of a savior. God is not ignoring your pain. He died for it. Wow. That is just so powerful. I, you know, Megan, I am just so grateful for you. I feel like you've kind of gone before us and have faced our greatest fear and you, I, and you're helping us walk through the hurts and brokenness in our own lives. Adrian, why don't you step in? I really love that you shared that, Meg, of just living in a broken world where broken things happen. And yeah, it's so important as followers of Christ to know that broken things still happen to us as followers of Christ. And it doesn't mean that God isn't good or that he doesn't love us. So thank you so much um, just for sharing that and sharing that when we experience these hurts that it's important to resolve them because these hurts ultimately will influence our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And to our listeners, we really hope that as a result of this week's discussion, that you will just be inspired by Megan's story. So Megan, thank you so much for joining with us on the podcast day and being vulnerable and open to share um, what God has done in your life and just the hurts you faced and how um, you're walking through them today. And Megan, if if someone wanted to reach out to you, um, how how could they do that? Through your Instagram or... Yeah, my Instagram would be great. I actually, what is my handle? We can post it in the show notes. <laughs> we can post it in the show notes. Wow, but I am so grateful, Megan. I mean, just your story is just really powerful. So thank you for opening up and allowing us to come into these little hurt places so we can learn from you and about the Lord. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for taking some time out today to just really listen to those who've um, gone before, and uh, we hope that you've been encouraged by today's discussion. And Adrian, thanks for being with me and picking up the slack when I couldn't talk <laughs> um, this week. And uh, to Logan, thank you so much for putting it together. And we're just really grateful for this podcast and just what God's doing in and through it. And uh, thank you for joining us. And we still have a lot to talk about, so we hope you'll join us again next week. 